Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a Malibu Bay Breeze. What do you have, Del? I am drinking a mango White Claw, and in this week's episode, we are going to look at the crimes of one of the most prolific serial killers in U.S. history, the Green River Killer. From 1982 to 1998, the Green River Killer murdered at least 49 women in Washington State, dumping the first of his victims' bodies in the Green River, located in King County, Washington. This case also has a connection to Ted Bundy, the notorious serial killer who we discussed in a previous episode. Before we get to that connection, let's talk about the murders committed by the Green River Killer. On July 15, 1982, the body of Wendy Caulfield was found by children playing alongside the riverbank. She had been strangled and dumped there. During the following weeks, four more bodies were found along the same riverbanks. On August 15th, three more bodies were found. Due to the amount of similarities between the dumping location and the victims, a police task force was established to help catch the Seattle area serial killer. There were many suspects, but one became a prime focus of the police due to his connection with the local prostitutes. That suspect's name was Gary Ridgway. Gary Leon Ridgway was born on February 18, 1949 in Salt Lake City, Utah. He was the second of three sons to Mary and Thomas Ridgway. He had a troubled childhood, and many people who grew up with him described his mother as domineering. He often witnessed violent arguments between his parents. Another note about his childhood is that his father often complained about sex workers. This would be the demographic of women that the Green River Killer would eventually target. In the spring of 1983, a prostitute named Marie Malvar was last seen with a man that matched Ridgway's description. The police questioned Ridgway, who denied any knowledge of Malvar, and the police lacked evidence to charge him with anything. In May of 1984, Ridgway passed a polygraph exam where he denied killing any women. The police had nothing to go on, and so they decided to take an unusual step to solve these murders. And this is where Ted Bundy enters the story. Ted Bundy reached out to the lead detective in the case to offer his assistance. Despite Bundy being a convicted serial killer and known sociopath, the detective agreed to fly to Florida to interview Bundy. This proved to be the best decision. Bundy hypothesized that the Green River Killer was revisiting the bodies of their victims and performing sexual acts on the bodies. In 1987, due to his connection to two new victims, the police asked Ridgway to provide a DNA sample. Since DNA testing was of poor quality at the time, it would take 10 years to connect Ridgway to the killings. During this time, until 2001, at least 20 more women would be killed. The advance in DNA technology helped definitively tie Ridgway to the murders. The Washington State Police Crime Laboratory described it as a last-ditch effort and was able to prove that Ridgway had murdered the early Green River killer victims. Ridgway was arrested on November 30, 2001. He was arrested in connection with four women. Two years later, he pled guilty to 48 first-degree murder charges in exchange for avoiding the death penalty. He confirmed that Ted Bundy's hypothesis was correct and he would often return to the bodies of his victims for sexual gratification. On December 18, 2003, Ridgway was sentenced to life in prison for each murder with no possibility of parole. He is currently housed at Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington. Jenny, what do you think of the Green River Killer? He... 
is so creepy to me. We talked about the Green River Killer a little bit in our Misty Copsy episode. So listen to that if you have the chance. People thought he had possibly been connected to her disappearance. We didn't think so, but it's another interesting case that we're very proud of. He reminds me a little bit of Jeffrey Dahmer in a way. He seemed kind of like dorky and mild-mannered and like unsuspecting because of that. Very scary how he had picked up a woman and then he went and like took her in the woods and killed her all with his son like 30 feet away or something like that and he would make women comfortable by putting toys in his car and he would show them pictures of his family to make him seem like he was just like a you know like a lonely family man that wouldn't hurt them and he knew he'd get away with killing sex workers and he has openly said that in interviews which is horrifying and just another example of stuff that we've mentioned on this show quite a few times that people go after certain groups of people because they know they can get away with it because either the police won't really care and won't be looking for them or their families won't necessarily know and won't be looking for them. I think his like hatred of prostitutes, there's a little bit like of a level of entitlement in that too. And he's another example of a killer that had issues with his mom, which is such a stereotype for male serial killers. Bridgeway admitted to having issues bedwetting like well into his teen years and his mom would clean him up even when he was a teenager. So that made him uncomfortable. His mom definitely overstepped boundaries by doing that with him. And that made him have a sexual desire for his mom, but also a hatred of her at the same time. I think it's clear that he hated women and I'm sure his feelings toward women came from his mom too. Something that I do think is really interesting, he is one of the most prolific serial killers. We know that he murdered around like 40, 50 women for sure. And I think he admitted to more, but I think he's kind of like a forgotten about serial killer. He's definitely like up there on like serial killer lists, but he's, you know, people always talk about Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer and John Wayne Gacy. And I don't think people talk about the Green River Killer as much when he did even more damage, for lack of a better term, than Ted Bundy did. So I definitely agree with your assessment of Bridgeway. I think that Gary Bridgeway was someone who had no regard for other people, especially not women. I think that when he spoke about women, even his own mother, it was with a level of disrespect. And you can see that in his crimes and the way that he handled the bodies afterwards. He has spoke about, well, the reason why he um, engaged in acts of necrophilia was because he didn't want the women to put up a fight. He was tired of women always fighting with him. And so he engaged in necrophilia, which is just disgusting and gross. And it's one of those things where it really shows you that even in death, women are just an object to him and something to be used for his own gratification. And then he just moves along. Gary Ridgway was definitely someone who was influenced by his father's opinions of sex workers. And it's definitely evident in the way that he talked about them. While he definitely had negative feelings about his father, it just goes to show you that even if you don't have the best relationship with your parents, you're still going to internalize their different views, whether those be positive or negative. One of the things that you had mentioned was how despite being the second most prolific serial killer, the Green River Killer is not the most well-known. Why do you think that is? 
I think there's a few different things. I can't definitively say like, yes, I know for certain this is why, but we've talked about Ted Bundy and, you know, there was, I guess, a sex appeal to him. The big thing with him that I'm sure most people know about is people were very charmed by him and they thought he was very attractive. In my opinion, Gary Ridgway is not very attractive. I don't find Ted Bundy attractive either, but he's not, I guess, traditionally good looking. So he doesn't really have that. And then in regards to, I guess, his manner of killing, I'm by no means downplaying what he did. I think Gary Ridgway was a evil, brutal person, but he was strangling prostitutes and people don't necessarily care about sex workers, especially in like the 80s and 90s. To the public, he didn't really have like, I don't know, a signature maybe for lack of a better word, where someone like Jeffrey Dahmer was then like dismembering people and eating them and like keeping them in his fridge. So that's super notable. We had mentioned John Wayne Gacy and we did an episode on him as well. And you know, he was putting victims in his house. He was burying them in his yard and in his crawl space. And you know, that's more more notable aspect of him. We're by no means saying that he was not a brutal person. We're not downplaying what he did. He destroyed people's lives, families' lives, but there's nothing unique, I guess you could say. There's nothing that I guess the media or the public really like latched onto with him. What do you think? I definitely agree with you. This is just my theory, but it also goes with what name we associate with the crimes. So for Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey Dahmer, we use their names in association with their crimes, right? It Ted Bundy did this, Jeffrey Dahmer did that. But when it comes to Gary Ridgway, we seem to always use the moniker that he was given by the media, which I think detaches people from the crimes because just like with other people that are just known by a moniker, there's mystery to it. You know, normally only being known by the moniker is tied to us not knowing who you are in the case of the Zodiac Killer or Jack the Ripper. So when it comes to Gary Ridgway, I think that people don't automatically associate him with being the Green River Killer so he doesn't become this infamous household name, for lack of a better term, in the same way that Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer are. I think that's a really good point. And I think I'm sure it's like the media that gave the name the Green River Killer. I mean, maybe the police were like working with that. And then like that got leaked to the media. But I think that's a good point. Because it is like the big buildup of who's the Green River Killer. Okay, now it's this guy. Let's move on. So like we stated before, Gary Ridgway targeted prostitutes as his primary victims. He stated prostitutes, quote, were easy to pick up without being noticed. I knew that they would not be reported missing right away and might never be reported missing. I picked prostitutes because I thought I could kill as many of them as I wanted without getting caught, end quote. This is related to a common association between a victim and what a victim does in their life that causes the public and by extension, the police, to not care as much about what happens to them. This misconception is often termed the perfect victim myth. The perfect victim myth can be described as the expectation that victims have nothing in their background that can be considered a moral failing and that a living victim of a crime's reaction must be one of high emotions and outward displays of sadness and or anger. This myth has been seen in sexual assault cases where things unrelated to the question of consent are used to show a victim wanted the sexual encounter. These include comments about what the victim was wearing, whether 
whether they said no or fought back, how long it took the victim to report the crime or if they reported it at all, any drug or alcohol use, a victim's sexual history, and a victim's relationship with the perpetrator. The perfect victim myth is one of the factors that has led to the reporting of sexual assaults and conviction rates for sexual assaults being low. According to Rain, only 310 out of 1,000 sexual assaults are reported. Of those, only 50 out of 1,000 resulted in conviction and 28 out of 1,000 resulted in the incarceration of the perpetrator. Rain estimates that for every 1,000 sexual assaults, 975 perpetrators will remain free. Jenny, what are your thoughts on the perfect victim myth and its effects on the prosecution of rape, homicides, and sexual assault cases? It's clear that the perfect victim myth is awful and very harmful. I can think of at least one case where that came into play with the kidnapping of Denise Huskins. She didn't really seem like that upset and she kind of didn't have like a ton of details either so it led police to believe that she was faking her kidnapping when she wasn't by any means it seems like it's pretty prevalent you know we have a better understanding of mental health and trauma as a society now but i think it's gonna take a lot going forward to get that perfect victim myth out of our heads honestly i feel like true crime documentaries and like different shows like law and order kind of make that worse in a way i know that obviously law and order is like fake and entertainment but it's acting and you would want a victim on that show i would imagine would you know be crying you know, very clearly upset about what happened to them. And that's, you know, not always the case in real life. People process things very differently. As for the effects on rape, homicide, and sexual assault cases, I mean, I think those numbers are clear. And part of why sexual assault isn't as reported, I think we've said this before, there is a culture of questioning the victim. And if you don't fit into this, then you know, I'm not going to take you seriously. And again, I think it also goes into who is worthy in the media. We've talked about countless cases where it was someone's race, someone's like socioeconomic status, someone's profession, where people didn't want to believe them because of that. I mentioned Misty Copsey before. Misty Copsey's mom had issues with substance use. And I think the officers in that case partly did not care about Misty because of the actions of her mother and because she had had some run-ins with the law. But that by no means makes her any less of a victim. And I think that's something that people sometimes don't understand. You can be the worst person in the world. You can be an abuser yourself. You can be a perpetrator of violence or a petty criminal. That doesn't mean you don't deserve some type of protection and justice in your life. I wouldn't be surprised if some of these women that Gary Ridgway killed were known to the police just with the nature of street sex work, especially during the 1980s. So I'm sure, you know, if some of them recognize these women, they would automatically know, okay, I picked her up in this area and charged her for sex work. And they might go into this case not putting their best effort forward. I think once the victims did start piling up, there was a public call to action. And I think the police did bring in a lot of forces to try to figure out who this guy was. So I'm happy that that all eventually worked out. I don't think someone's history should really play a role in what their perpetrator, I guess, 
get sentenced with, I really, I don't think that's fair. And I think that's a major flaw in our justice system. What do you think? I definitely agree with you. When looking at a victim's trauma response, I think that, like you said, people have this kind of tunnel vision when it comes to what it should look like. And everyone responds to trauma differently. You can't even assume that because someone's a victim of X crime, that they're going to respond in the same way. Some people are like outwardly emotional. Some people shut down. It's connected to that fight, flight, or freeze reaction that we all have. And that doesn't just happen when the crime is happening to you, but also afterwards and how you interact with people. All of those trauma responses are valid. And like you said, should not play a factor in whether the perpetrator is arrested and convicted for it. And when it comes to the past history of victims, in addition to rape, homicides, and sexual assault cases, I hear hear this a lot in police brutality cases. So for example, when it came to George Floyd and his murder, a lot of people brought up the fact that he was on fentanyl, the fact that he had previous run-ins with the cop, the fact that he was previously incarcerated. Like none of that matters when it comes to the question of was he murdered by the police? All that matters is what was happening in that moment. When it comes to the perfect victim myth, it just goes along with people being very desensitized to violence. And so if it's not someone they feel like they can champion, a lot of times they completely downplay what happened to them. And when it comes to the effects on prosecution, I think that the effects are clear where if you don't have someone where you feel like you can sell them to a jury, you don't even want to proceed with the case. We already have a lot of cases that end in plea agreements. And so when you factor that in as well, it's very lazy on the prosecution side of things to say that if this is not an easy case for me to win at trial, or if this this is not a case that I can get a plea bargain connected to. I'm just not going to pursue it. And so it has the ripple effects of victims saying, well, this may have happened to me, but I know that no one else is going to care. And then it's connected to the mental health of victims. And like you said before, definitely in the 80s and 90s, it was a lot worse than it is today. But today is by no means the standard for how we should be treating victims of violent crimes. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the Green River Killer, Gary Ridgeway. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on Action Park. As always, stay safe.